All right, Athens, tell us your story. A podcast featuring the people of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. The stories are as unique as the people themselves, but they all reveal the character, the culture, and the distinct voices of a classic Southern community. My name is Joel Mize. I'm born in Haleville, Alabama in 1942, just a couple of months short of my 81st birthday. So I've got 81 years of story to tell. The uh, principal focus of my story today is going to be about my family. And part of what triggers this discussion of my family is that I've been wanting for years to do something with my uncle Otto Putnam's wonderful uh, legacy left on the form of a diary in his Marine Corps jacket that's on the lining on the inside of his jacket. He kept a diary of each step in the service, what date and where he enlisted, where he served. He enlisted July the 1st, 1942 in Birmingham, Alabama. And then his first battle was in the Iwanatak Atoll in the Marshall Islands. His stories are a little bit gory, so I, I hesitate a bit. He didn't talk much about his stories, but what he did tell me about is that he was trained to use flamethrowers, and the Japanese would hide in these caves, and part of his job was to smoke them out, if you will, or put fire in the hole so that the Japanese would come out. And so uh, apparently he had some experience at doing that. But he also was involved in some hand-to-hand fighting, and he spoke about getting Japanese brains across his face as being one of his uh, kind of most memorable events from the war. And he was in three major battles in the Pacific before uh, getting wounded. And I think maybe his injury that he finally got in the invasion of Guam is what was most traumatic for him. Uh, He was wounded in battle and he's hospitalized for a little over a year in a series of about eight uh, military hospitals before finally being released. And I don't really know the story about that because he didn't talk much about it. What I do know is that he came out of the war sterile so that he couldn't have children. So he and his wife had a a long life uh, but without children. And I think he regretted that. And there's some kind of back talk that I hear from family that maybe his injuries were more of a PTSD kind of injury. Uh, they called it shell shock back in the day. And, and I don't know the truthfulness of what was really what. And again, he didn't seem to want to talk about it. It was traumatic and there could have been an embarrassing element. So that could be a reason for him not to want to talk about it as well. But I have the whole list of hospitals he went to, and those include hospitals on ship, hospitals on shore, hospitals back in the States, and it was from the Marine Barracks Navy Yard, uh, Philadelphia, PA, that he got his honorable discharge. He had a medical uh, discharge. So that was done in March 28th of 1945, so he was discharged several months before the end of the war. Uh, Also, he never asked for and never got a Purple Heart, and I'm in the process of applying for a Purple Heart for his service in the Marine Corps. 
He wasn't one to tell a lot of stories. When he would visit our home, he was usually talking adult talk with my parents. Uh, he had an unusual way of smoking a cigarette. And I don't know where he picked this up. Maybe it was in Philadelphia. But he used a cigarette holder, like you see in the movies sometime. And it would be about a four-inch extension, and he'd put that holder in his mouth. And, and he was the only person I ever knew who smoked using an extension holder. And whether that was a form of prestige on his part or being a little bit above norm, I'm not sure. But uh, in any event, uh, he wasn't a particularly proud man. He was actually a very attractive man, a very manly man. Now, he had another injury that's a little bit humorous and that may be a little bit off color. And this has to do when he was in his 40s. In his 40s, uh, his best friend was a doctor in Haleville. And one day, he decided to go home from his medical practice early. And he found Uncle Otto in the house in the upstairs bedroom with his wife and got his shotgun with BB pellets in it and Uncle Otto was going out the window and shot Uncle Otto in the buttocks with birdshot and then took him down to the clinic to remove the birdshot with a pen knife so he got his revenge and uh, cured Uncle Otto from further wandering uh, off the playing field. <laughs> I hope that's not too colorful. And I had another uncle, and his name was Joe. But Uncle Joe, he was military, primarily after the war, so he didn't really have battle experience. But what he did do is he's got a post-war diary that he kept on a day-by-day -day basis in uh, November in Japan, October in Japan. So this is uh, Uncle Joe Putnam, and he is in Japan as one of the occupation forces. First entry appears to be October the 29th. He boarded the train at Omori, Honshu, Japan. The 81st band is playing. Fellows shaking hands, everybody's excited. Train not much different to our own, only smaller. We're traveling first class, but the coaches are quite dusty and outmoded. Now the band is playing Old Lang Syne and Wildcat March, pulling out at 0945. Sleeping accommodation's not too good. Coaches are quite dusty from cinders and smoke. Didn't sleep much last night. Got up and shaved at 1 o'clock. Felt much better. Arrived in Tokyo at 0900. Almost everywhere there was evidence of bombing. Block after block literally smashed to the earth. The attitude of the civilians was a surprise. Men, women, and kids waving at us as if we were their own conquering heroes. Still a lot of the more important looking people remained stoical. Our steam engine was replaced with an electric engine in the outskirts of Tokyo. The trains operated very efficiently, ran about as fast as our own. The railroads are all narrow gauge, traffic is very crowded, arrived Ediwara Station, 1100 on October 30th. 
he was a medic, so his job would have been something in the medical field. So whether he was tending to GIs that had gotten wounded uh, or just what is not uh, clear from the diary here. Okay. Um, well, let me uh, kind of read a, a couple more excerpts from the, uh, from the diary. Uh, we were met at the station by Jap military trucks and shuttled to this camp, quite an elaborate place compared to our last barracks. Two-story, barrack-like buildings, very neat and clean stucco buildings with tile roofs. I'm told this building was a dormitory for women who worked in the big factory down the street. I'll find out what it is as soon as the quarantine is lifted. It's raining now, drizzling, lonesome, homesickness producing rain. We're inside of Fujiyama, but it's too cloudy to see. Had a bath that was worth writing home about. Left me feeling like an 18-year-old. And this is an entry from November 2nd of 1945. Another lovely day. Can see Fujiyama very plainly except for small clouds near the summit. This being restricted to an area is beginning to make me nervous again. I have the feeling that I can imagine a man in jail has. Enlisted men can't go outside the fence officially, but officers can. There's a big elementary school next door to this same block. I can see the children playing, shouting, and I took the liberty along with several other GIs to investigate. They're having a field day, playing games we had never seen before and several the same as ours. I've never seen so much wholehearted participation in an event before in my life. These people really go in a big way for sports, girls and boys alike. The absence of confusion was the most amazing thing I noticed. Every event followed the other with clock-like precision. Rather unexpected, too, was their record playing machine, playing American tunes. Old Kentucky home, I noticed. The manager, very politely, invited us to sit down and enjoy the events along with the civilians. Ever since I've been in the Army, puzzling things have been happening, and they haven't ceased yet. The attitude of the Jap is hard to understand. I wonder what his thinking is, too. Uh, his own ship here, still in the bay, can see portions of Jap ships sunk in the harbor, freighters, transports, and two aircraft carriers. No signs of bomb damage to harbor facilities. Everything seems to be in good shape. Strategic bombing is quite an art. We're surrounded by hundreds of ships of all kinds, battle wagons, cruisers, transports, aircraft carriers. I was never so crowded before, nearly 6,000 men in the space of a 70 foot by 600 foot when we are on deck, and that's nearly all the time. Can't afford to have tempers flare up now because of a nudging. There is some griping among the men because of the difference in the EM and officer's food being served. I can eat anything, though, until I get home. Getting excited again. Now we're actually on our way. Ship is rolling some now, but so far, I'm not woozy. Maybe I won't get sick this time. The captain announced our probable deembarkment as 26th of November. This is from December of 1945. So he had gone through his several months of occupation in Japan after the war. He says it's, uh, he's on his train, and this is the December 5th, 6th, 7th entries. And he says, beginning to look like the South, feeling pretty good today, thinking a lot about Francis and Joe, that's Joe Jr. 
I tried to sleep and ignore the conversations until they got disturbing, and now I can't sleep until I write about it. It's awfully disturbing to me about the attitude some of these men have. Their stories are still going strong. They're bragging about the way they treat Negroes in the South in comparison to the way they're treated up here, keeping the Negro in his place. There isn't one man talking that can speak without profanity. I've never heard such unreasonable, senseless chatter in my life. White supremacy, they're crying now. I wonder if they have any idea why this war was fought. They don't seem to know that we whites are a minority in the world's population. I wonder if the South will ever see the light and use tolerance. It's disturbing. And I've got the idea that this maybe was some pre-war stories that they were telling about abusing blacks. And the time frame is not given as to when they were doing this, but I'm surmising it would have been before the war. So uh, in any event, that gives you an idea of the heart of the man. Uh, and that was one of his experiences that he felt strongly uh, that he couldn't sleep until he wrote about it. Now, the whole family were involved in the war effort. First of all, my grandmother, she was the mother of 14 children. In her youth, she was a young, slender, beautiful woman. Her maiden name was Ramsey. And so she's from a long line of Scots-Irish. And uh, here she is in her wedding dress. And this is her husband, my grandfather Putnam. And he was a cotton mill builder. And he had gone to her hometown of Gainesville, Georgia, to build the New Holland Cotton Mill, he and his father. So while there, they were, were married. Uh, in about 1905, they decided to move the whole family to Alabama. They got on a train in Georgia, came through Birmingham, and supposedly someone pickpocketed the main wallet that was carrying the money that they were planning on living on. So they took the train as far north as they could, which was up around uh, Nauvoo, Alabama. Nauvoo is a little community that's right on the Winston County, Walker County line. They got off the train there and found an abandoned cabin and uh, met some locals in the neighborhood and they were offered that cabin as a place to live temporarily until they could build their own. So. They proceeded to have a family, and she eventually had 14 children. Of those 14, only eight lived to adulthood, so many of them died of childhood diseases. But these are self-sufficient, hardy people is part of the message that I'm telling you. And when the time for the war came, they all knew that they had to play a part. The family produced four men that entered the military. We've talked about Otto and we've talked about Joe. There's also George and Johnny. Both George and Johnny joined the Navy. So you had a Marine Corps, you had an Army Air Corps, and you had two sons in the Navy. But Susan Jane Ramsey Putnam had begun to play that part much earlier in World War I. So she operated one of the mess halls over on the U.S. Army a reservation in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, where the two nitrate plants were being built for the war effort. So the family lived for a year in a tent with five children living in the tent that had a board floor 
So that was her service in World War I. In World War II, she went down to Brooklyn Air Base in Mobile, Alabama, took two of her sons with her. And so the three of them lived in an apartment uh, there together in Mobile. And she was a painter on the Brooklyn Air Base. Uh, that was her Rosie the Riveter job, if you will, during World War II. Well, the whole country was pulling together then. The uh, Pearl Harbor event really inflamed the whole country. We had this predisposition of wanting to stay neutral in the war. Uh, nevertheless, once that attack from Pearl Harbor occurred, the whole country joined together as one and decided survival was going to be at stake. It was already clear that it looked like it was going to be a war in Europe as well as a war in the Pacific. And uh, consequently, we got stretched really thin. Uh, everything that we could produce and make and provide was critically important to the outcome of those wars. And these were my personal heroes. These were the heroes that I knew firsthand, along with my dad. My dad brought home from Germany a box full of memorabilia, German helmets, a Luger pistol, uh, medals, etc., that he took from some German soldiers somewhere along the way and sent those momentous home. Those were my toys that I played with <laughs> as a boy after World War II. So I'm kind of embedded with the World War II experience. I got it indirectly. These are the most precious inheritances that I have. Now, my dad was a private first class. Uh, he said that he was offered promotions to corporal and didn't take it because the Germans had uh, sharpshooters and uh, guys that would look for all the officer types and would shoot them first. So it was a very hazardous, dangerous job to be a frontline soldier. Now, my dad indeed was a frontline soldier in the final push through France and in through Germany, ending up in Austria. He was right on the front line as a scout. So it was his job when he crossed the Maginot Line and the Siegfried Line, he was to go up and investigate the pillboxes in advance of the main body of troops moving on up there. So he was always worried about getting shot in the back as much as he was in the front, just in case a firefight broke out while he was in an exposed position. I asked him if he ever killed a German. He said, well, to tell you the truth, I really don't know for certain. He says, if I did kill one, it would have been taking shots from about 100 yards away. We had this position where the Germans were moving from one barrier that they had to another barrier, and there's a gap in between. And they would jump from one gap to the next. And he said, I was there and I trained my rifle, and every time one jumped, I'd pull my trigger. Every time he jumped, I'd pull the trigger again and again. But I never saw what happened to them after they got to the other side. So I don't know if I was killing them, wounding them, or missing them. So I got those kind of stories from my dad. The main feeling that I've had through the years is a strong feeling of patriotism. Now, patriotism is on the big decline in our country. I'm sad to see that, but I've always been an advocate of patriotism. My first political inclination was when I was a fourth grader 
and there was a guy by the name of Eisenhower running for president, and I remember getting my I Like Ike pen. And so since my young adulthood, I have been, I wouldn't say a worshiper of men in the military, but they've been my heroes. So the MacArthur's, the Eisenhower's, the Patton's, those were the icons that I would look to, and I would see them reflected in my own family. So I've got my dad on the one side, and I've got all these uncles on my mother's side. So the people that I looked up to as images of who I would want to grow up to be, I would look to them. So, yeah, so you can tell I've got emotions that uh, come with this story. And uh, stemming from the World War I days on the reservation and Muscle Shoals, this family was involved in every aspect of military engagement during World War II. They served in Marine Corps, Army Air Corps, Navy, and frontline in Europe. So the war in, in the Pacific and the war in Europe they were there, and they were there in important roles, they were there in high-risk roles, and they performed admirably. You've been listening to All Right Athens, produced by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on our podcast, please visit our website at alcpl.org for ways to submit your story. All Right Athens is part of our Library Voices series and available on your favorite podcast platform.